Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm James. And I'm Faye. Here we are, it's January the 1st, and we have a great guest with us today to kick off 2023. Ben Stanton is one of the managers in the TMT Insights team at Deloitte. Each year, Deloitte casts a perspective on the big issues in technology, media, and telecommunications, TMT. Ben is here with us today to provide a glimpse into the 2023 predictions and give us some insights and pieces of information before they become conventional wisdom. Happy New Year, Ben. Thanks very much for being with us today. Happy New Year, guys. How are you? Uh, I think we're all good. Ready ready for the start of a new year, aren't we? Yep, ready to go. So let's get started with you. Can you tell us what the Deloitte TMT insights are and how are they actually put together? The easiest way to explain that is to tell you why I exist. And then that should lead into why we have Deloitte produces insight and research. Uh, So I actually am different from most people in Deloitte in that I don't really do any real work. We have lots of smart consultants and lots of professional services experts that do real work with clients uh, and make money for Deloitte. And I'm completely different from them in that I make no money at all for the firm. What I do is get to float around and create research and insights. And 95% of what I create uh, is public reports that you can read online. And we tend to position those as industry goods. Um, It's great for us if the tech, media and telco industries all move forward, grow and progress, because it means that our clients and our prospects, but also other professional services firms do really well as well. So we have a whole bucket load of research that we just publish free for all to the public. You can read online about all manner of things tech if you're interested in that kind of stuff. So that's why I exist and that's why Deloitte creates research reports. That's great. I have to say I was a little bit worried when you started the year saying you don't do any work. I was thinking that might have been a little career limiting for you, but but you 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 sorted that one out. Thank you. So so I guess before we dive into the detail of the insights, it sounds like Deloitte.com is the place people can go to download the report. Is that right? That's right. So honestly, you could put into any good search engine, uh, you can put the word Deloitte and then put a technology issue and there's a good chance you'll find a piece of research about it. Um, when we go into the new year, though, as we are now, uh, the, the big report we try and highlight is called TMT Predictions. So if you search for TMT Predictions 2023, you'll see all of our expectations for, for this year. Hats off to your SEO team then for indexing highly on Google. Um, right. So we've had a sneak peek. So we've got a few questions. But before we dive into the specifics, why don't you give us some of your highlights from the uh, the 2023 predictions? Sure. Well, we have the way it works is it's not just me. We have a global team of researchers across many different countries. So the first thing to say is every prediction I talk about today, you should think of through a global lens. If I give you a number, so many billion dollars or so many million people, think of that as a global number. Um, But it tends to go 
all around the world. We published in 65 countries last year. And this year we have 15 separate chapters. So that's 15 separate predictions for things we think are going to happen in tech, media, and telco this year. So they are it's it's not easy to condense them all down, but I'll do my best. Um, they're categorized into five categories. And those categories are telecoms, semiconductor, screens and media, technology, and mergers and acquisitions. So I'll run through the, the very brief headline for each, and then we can dive in. Um, in telecoms, we have three. So our first prediction in telecoms is that we see huge potential in broadband satellites, so low Earth orbit satellites that give connectivity in really remote areas. So we think there'll be 5,000 of those in the skies by the end of this year. Um, a second prediction in telecoms is we think that 5G smartphones are going to get much, much cheaper in 2023. And we think we'll see the first ever phone below $100. So if you can put, convert that to pounds, uh, maybe lower than £90 equivalent in value um, to the customer. Uh, and the third prediction we have in telecoms is that 5G standalone, which means to take the 5G network that exists today and strip out the core and completely replace it with a 5G core, we think lots more telcos are going to invest in that and it's going to transform what you can do with 5G. So that's telecoms. Second category is semiconductors. So we have three again in semiconductors. The first is that we think artificial intelligence is going to become really important in designing semiconductors and chipsets. So if you think about AI today, you might think of it as something that can play a decent game of chess or even a decent game of Go. Um, but solving complex uh, patterned issues like constructing designs for semiconductors is something you can do with it. So we think that'll be a $300 million industry this year. The second prediction we have in semis is we think there'll be new materials, compound semiconductors like gallium nitrate and silicon carbide, which arise to challenge traditional silicon in some areas. Um, and then the third is we think we'll see the rise of radiation-hardened chips, so chips that can survive deep space. If we want to make it to Mars in the next decade, we're going to want to worry about those. So the third category we have is screens and media. So there are five in this category, and I'll, I'll go through them relatively promptly. We think that advertising is going to make a big comeback in video. So you might be used to subscribing to video services today that you'd pay for and have no ads, but you may start to see ads creeping back in. The second is we think that streaming platforms are going to be much more important in buying live sports rights. So if you watch NBA or NFL or the Premier League, expect more streaming services to be offering them versus traditional broadcasters. The third is about producing movies. So our third prediction in that category is about virtual production. Traditionally, you would use a green screen behind famous actors if you want to create uh, virtual effects in movies. But we're increasingly seeing movie companies invest in massive screens, huge walls of LEDs instead of green screens so actors can react to their background in, in real time. The fourth is about social media and social shopping. So we think social shopping 
which means buying things through Instagram and TikTok and lots of social media platforms. We think that will become a $1 trillion industry this year. And lots of influencers selling their products online and, and Gen Z especially buying things directly through the marketplace in a social media platform. And then the last one in screens and media is about VR, virtual reality. So in short, it's going to be a growth year for virtual reality. And we think the whole market will be worth uh, $7 billion in revenue. So two more, we're almost there, two more categories to talk about and only two predictions in each. Technology is our next category. So we think that edge computing is going to have a, a breakout year and we're going to see 20% growth in the edge computing market. And we also think climate is going to be very important and sustainability. And we see tech companies moving much faster than non-tech companies when it comes to um, ESG, net zero targets and climate ambitions. And then the last category, the last two predictions we have are about mergers and acquisitions. One of them is about gaming. So we think gaming is going to be a really hot area for M&A this year, 25% more deals than last year. And we also think divestitures are going to be a big theme. So lots of big tech and media companies that look to carve out, strategically carve out various parts of their business uh, to streamline or to raise capital uh, in this current economic climate. So in a brief nutshell, they are the 15 Deloitte predictions for tech and media this year. Crikey. Well done, Ben. That's that's an awful lot of information um, to, to go through, but very succinctly put, thank you. So what I would like to do is now start to unpick some of those, if, if we may. So let's just start in the order that you talked about them with the telecoms predictions, first of all. Um, I think we're a comment rather than a question. Um, so CW, Cambridge Wireless, they have a satellite special interest group who have been talking about satellite for the last few years. So I think they'll be delighted with this prediction that, you know, it's showing the exponential growth and also the challenges that are going to, to come with it. So I think that one will fall on, on, on very happy ears. Um, I guess I actually I'd like to pick up on the 5G one here with regards to the edge devices. So on the Cambridge Science Park, we've actually had a 5G test bed here for the last couple of years, really to test IoT devices. And within the report, as you drill down it a little, it shows that you expect enterprises to now start using some of those IoT solutions that are on the market. So can you give us some insights as to what type of applications you think they will start with? Yeah, great question. And actually, we do the same thing at, at Deloitte. So very often we build 5G networks for, for some of our clients too. So the current 5G networks that exist in most places in the world are a kind of hybrid networks. So you have 5G radios sat on top of 4G LTE cores. And our prediction is all about 5G standalone. So it's stripping out that core and replacing it with a 5G core on which much of the function will be virtualized. And that allows you to do several crucial things. So one of the things that we've highlighted is uh, network slicing. So this is nothing new. You'll have seen uh, bodies like the GSMA talk about this for years, and it's slowly now becoming a reality. So with network slicing, you can create these slithers of um, radio bands for specific instances, and companies can build 
use cases around kind of having a dedicated 5G line for various functions. So the challenge so far with enterprise 5G is that in lots of places you want to deploy it, uh, if you look at like factories or warehouses, most in most instances you'd find a similar network built on Wi-Fi 6. It's cheaper to do. Um, but now we're starting to see examples of 5G enterprise really come through. Unless you say um, most of that built around IoT. So ports is one example of a place where we see lots of traction because in ports you have this kind of complex array of indoor and outdoor so it's very difficult to address that with wi-fi alone you have big shipping containers that uh, move across these vast um, vast plains of land inside and outside of, of facilities so that's one example but my favorite actually is in the us we're seeing a lot of interest in deploying 5g in stadiums in specifically in sports stadiums for for NFL teams. Um, So the reason why you'd need private 5G in those instances isn't necessarily for the fans, but it's for the teams themselves. So right now in lots of sports games, especially in the NFL, you have teams that run analytics in real time on the game as it goes ahead. So they have all this data coming in and you have the coach on the sideline and he has a data scientist next to him with a tablet, and they'll see things like player metrics, positioning, um, and they'll be running analysis in real time on the plays on the pitch. Um, so it's incredibly important to have a private 5G slice for that team uh, because it could give you an advantage. If you're playing against a team that has uh, is trying to share a network with 50,000 or 100,000 fans in the stadium, they could be at a massive disadvantage. So kind of building those private slices for sports teams is actually one of the early instances in the US. So um, we see a lot of potential in 5G standalone in the next year. And that's why we see lots of telcos now investing. So it's, it's no longer about coaching the best players. It's about having the best 5G infrastructure in your stadium. I love that. It could be. Yeah, and actually, the extension to that is, I think in the next 10 years, you'll see various big sports leagues mandating that you have to give your opponent a, a decent private 5G network. So right now, if you look at the Premier League in the UK, uh, actually, the opposition team in the stadium is given a minimum standard of facilities. So they have to be given a certain changing room, for example, the square footage per person. So I can see an exa- a scenario where you have like a minimum network requirement for the opposition. Otherwise, you can see them disrupting each other's network to try and gain um, an advantage on the pitch. I mean, you, you've been doing these for a number of years. I, I, before I ask this question, I'll hold my hands up and, and say that I did work in the mobile industry for like 20 years. So I'm kind of guilty of this, I guess. But we, we see a lot of these hype cycles around new generations of mobile technology. You know, we had it with 3G, 4G, now 5G. You know, over the years, how how long does it typically take for you know, real utility and real mass adoption to actually come through with these generational shifts in technology? In my view, we're actually moving into an era where it takes longer and longer. So the gap between the paradigm shifts increases every time. Uh, There is not kind of generally speaking, you don't see as big a step change from 4G to 5G as we saw from 3G to 4G, for example. And in the mass market, the applications aren't there, which is why actually it's now so exciting to see 5G SA start to become a reality because all of a sudden you can see the 
green shoots of use cases emerge. Whereas the challenge with current 5G networks is it just doesn't do enough to uh, really create new value. And that's why you see lots of telcos now talking about things like net neutrality and talking about merging with one another because they have to find ways to monetize 5G. So I'm, I'm with you in the in the sentiment of the question, which is that uh, these paradigm shifts, I think, are getting harder and harder to come by. But when they come along, they certainly are exciting. Yeah. And um, just to pick up on the 5G smartphone at like 99 pounds or, you know, around that price point, 99 bucks. What's the target audience for that? Is that broadening reach in countries with high mobile penetration? Or is that looking to open up new markets in areas where there's low adoption of smartphones? Yeah, well, actually, now you say it, $99 wasn't worth much different than £99 not that long ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so actually, you may be able to use those interchangeably. The reality is, in the UK, we, we probably don't see that device in the next 12 months. But I'd uh, probably see it first in China, and then or India, and then probably next in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. So this is about building a mass market for 5G devices. And in those markets, you have telcos that are able to subsidize a device based on having complete control of an ecosystem. And they can deliver content or adverts on that device. In China, you have App Store control. So in China, lots of the smartphone brands actually own the App Store that people buy their apps through. It's not the case outside of China. Um, so it's all about getting these devices into people's hands. And for telcos, the critical metric is that delivering a gigabyte of data over 5G is significantly cheaper for them uh, once the infrastructure is deployed than delivering it of over 4G. So if you look at places like South Africa, in South Africa, a lot of the big telcos are deliberately flooding their install base with 5G phones in order to make their 5G network more profitable on day one. They don't have 5G networks operational yet, but they're giving their customers 5G devices um, in order to make sure that when the net that network switches on, you have customers using that, that technology. That didn't happen here in the UK. If you remember in the UK, we got 5G networks when there weren't many devices that were capable. So it's very different in the developing world. And would they be running Android or some other operating system? Android. Uh, in pretty much every case there will be you might find one or two other oss there are other oss that exist but we're talking about smartphones so i'm not talking about smart feature phones running kai os or anything uh, something that looks like an old school nokia i'm talking about a device that can run third-party apps with a with a screen that covers the whole face Let's talk about GrowthWorks. It's the fully funded program that's supporting the leaders of ambitious growth businesses to scale and double their profits and productivity. If you're looking to take your business to the next step, GrowthWorks will support you to plan bigger, scale faster, and stay ahead of the game so you can deliver on both your financial and market share targets. Exclusively for businesses across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, GrowthWorks is here to help you. Get started and arrange a call with them on www.growthworks.uk.
So I'm going to move us on because there are five categories of predictions and I guess we could go deep on all of them, but I, I want to get a flavour of each of the, the five if, if that's possible. So let's move to the semiconductor space. And we've had already in the short lifespan so far of Cambridge Tech Podcast, we've actually had quite a few conversations with Pragmatic, Raspberry Pi, and more recently with Tim Minshall. And we talked with each of them about the challenges around silicon production in the UK. And actually, at the end of 2022, the government released a paper, and I've been having a discussion with Matt Goodin from Tech Nation on that subject. What do you think we can actually do to improve silicon production in the UK? You know, can we actually do it in the UK? It's not impossible, but it's a huge challenge. So actually, that links into one of our predictions from last year. Actually, in the last year, we thought that the semiconductor shortage that's plagued our industry for the, the last couple of years would have persisted more than it did. But you're right, silicon sovereignty is really important. Nothing gets a government moving quite like a national security concern. And government support is crucial to that. In my view is if it, I don't necessarily think it needs to be UK based uh, as long as you have a strong set of allies that are investing in semiconductor production. So I am encouraged, for example, by the EU and US CHIP Act that were each announced this year. Having semiconductors manufactured in the EU, I think is a huge asset to us in the UK, regardless of whether we're able to increase our own uh, capacity for production or not. Um, we shouldn't overlook that. And actually, we shouldn't look to overbuild in a way that would circumvent the investments being made in the EU. Part of the reason I say that is because building a fab is really hard. So if you want to create a semiconductor fab, you probably need three to five years of runway, and you need about up to $10 billion. Um, so just to put into context, the reason we've had semiconductor shortages in the past two years is because seven years ago, we misforecast what demand would be now. So making those kind of bets as to what you think global demand will be five years from now is really hard to do. And that's why you tend to see conservatism with these investments. And actually, that's why a lot of private equity is conservative with their investment in semi-production, which is why you need governments to step in. But I would say I'm encouraged by what's happening actually in the EU. And having a strong network of allies with semiconductor manufacturing capacity is good enough. We don't necessarily have to see it happen in the UK, in my view. Right. I mean, that that's really interesting. Context is always the, the important word, isn't it? And I must correct myself. I said that Matt Gooding was tech nation and he's actually tech monitor just in case he starts telling me off. Um, so sticking with the semiconductor space, we've got GAN on the predictions list as well. And here in Cambridge, we've got some great companies doing work around gallium nitride. One of them, I don't know if you've come across them, Cambridge GAN devices, they're doing some really exciting things. So what do you think is going to be the impact on all of these newer materials? What's what's the impact that they're going to have on the broader silicon market? Do you think it's it's natural evolution or are we going to expect any displacement? There will be displacement. Uh, absolutely, but it will happen in specific areas. So traditional silicon is still king. It is going to be the material that's used in semiconductors in phones, computers, data centers uh, for the foreseeable. But the weakness of traditional silicon is that it's really suited for low voltage devices. So it works best about one to one and a half volts. And that means when you have applications like 
electric vehicle chargers or really advanced solar panels, or even if you just want to make your chargers for your electronics much more efficient, uh, it's not the best uh, material for that. So we're really bullish about um, gallium nitride, but also silicon carbide as well. So we think those compound semiconductors will be worth more than $3 billion in 2023. And across the world, you see loads of applications for that. So if you look at fast direct current chargers for electric vehicles, um, they run about 480 volts. The internal batteries by 2025 will be running about 800 volts. So that kind of charge would just fry traditional silicon. And and right now, you think the, the natural argument is, well, we have electric cars now, so what do we use? We actually use special silicon-based chipsets that are kind of highly oxidized, but not particularly efficient at the job they do. So what GAN and what silicon carbide do as well is allow us to make much smaller, cheaper, more efficient chargers in instances like electric cars. They're much, much more efficient. So not only for electric cars, but also for the chargers for all of our devices at home, you know, being able to draw power from the mains in a much more efficient way is really important. And if you have small percentage gains, but you add up over the millions of devices we use in the UK, you can see quite significant energy savings by using some of these new technologies. So we're really bullish about this. We think it's great for the planet. And actually, going back to the previous question on silicon sovereignty, the fab location for uh, gallium nitride uh, in particular is really nicely dispersed around the world. So more than half of the fabs that exist are in uh, EMEA or they are in the US. They're not necessarily concentrated in Taiwan or or South Korea, as, as is the case in traditional silicon. So a really nice growing new market and one that we are certainly a part of in the UK. Yeah. And I, I, I like the point you made there about it's great for the planet. You know, having these different options, I think, is really going to aid the sustainability as use cases and adoption changes as well. Yeah. Um, OK, so moving on to screens and media, uh, virtual reality certainly stands stands out with a very bullish statement about it going mainstream. I mean, there, there's certainly been a lot of hype around these technologies, uh, AR alongside VR as well. I mean, what's changed? What what indicators are you seeing? Because I'll ask you a second question in, in in a moment. But you know, Meta slash Facebook have certainly laid off a lot of their VR teams in the in the last round of tech layoffs in their companies. So, what's what's giving you the confidence around twenty twenty three being the year of VR? Great question. So, and it's one of the most contentious topics. When I go to present to our clients, like I said, I'm not billed by them, but I do interact with them a lot. It's almost always the topic we're asked to include in every presentation, no matter who I'm seeing. Um, So everyone is interested in VR. Just to give some context, what our our prediction says that the revenue generated by VR is going to grow substantially this year. Does that account for and offset what's being invested to produce these devices and experiences? Possibly not. So we're not saying it'll be massively profitable, but we are saying more people will be adopting headsets and more people will be using VR in 2023. One of the things which is happening is you now see new devices in the market. So there are standalone devices that rival what Meta has, but also you see tethered devices. So you'll see a PlayStation device uh, in February as well. And I think actually when when we talk about VR, it is often positioned as something which needs to be multi-purpose. 
So it needs to be something which is the focus for gaming and socializing and it is the future of work and it's going to be the place we exercise. And the reality is that if you want to create a multi-purpose device like that, it's really hard to do. So our advice actually in, to, to the VR industry is to focus on what makes it unique. And in, particularly, in particular in consumer, look at gaming as the place where it can really start to gain share and traction. It's not going to displace everything we do on devices today, but there are little instances where it's better. So one example would be if you're working, we're we're producing a podcast right now, but imagine that you're on a, a corporate webinar. Lots of people will zone out of Zoom presentations and Teams presentations, and they will do their other work in the background or they'll check their emails. If you have those same kind of meetings in VR, it's very difficult for people to do work on the side of your of your Zoom call or Teams call. So there are little instances where more immersion really does make a difference. So our call to action for that industry is to focus on those areas. But you're you're right that at the moment it certainly is not the next big platform in 2023. This is a small stepping stone on a much much longer journey. We think that's really interesting, Ben. Thanks. Um, you you mentioned gaming there, so I guess that's a good segue to to move on to gaming. Perhaps many don't know, but Cambridge is very much a centre of gaming. We've got Frontier Developments, Jagex, Ninja Theory, just to name a few. We've got a couple of gaming startups here in the Bradfield Centre as well, actually. You're predicting a significant development in this space around M&A in particular. So why don't we start with just getting your take on that, the kind of state of the gaming market and why there's such a flurry of kind of the M&A activity happening right now? Yeah, definitely. So... Uh, in terms of deal value this year, it'll be down because there was one pr- particularly huge acquisition that happened last year, which has distorted things. But in terms of volume of deals, we think the volume of gaming MA deals will increase 25% in 2023. So a, a significant growth in uh, companies being acquired. Um, and actually, gaming is, we feel that it's often criminally underrated. The gaming industry generates more revenue than video subscriptions, digital music, and smart home services combined. So it is massive. Two out of three people in the UK claim to play games on their devices. So it's not just something that young males do in their bedrooms, um, but it really is something that everybody does. Um, And it's an industry which is particularly hot, we think, because of the transformation that has happened in the past few decades. So it used to be based on hardware sales. You'd you'd buy a console and you'd buy cartridges for that console, but there wouldn't be much value add. Um, Then in the last uh, few years, we've transitioned to software. So all of a sudden, digital content is much more important. Um, And then now today, we have lots of games companies that are building their next platforms. They're building subscription services and digital libraries of games, um, almost like a Netflix of games that people can subscribe to and have access to lots of content. So all of that transformation attracts buyers and attracts different companies to your industry. So on the one hand, we have games platforms, so the kind of console companies that are buying publishers. So they want to ring fence various titles and games for their own platforms. Uh, We have media and entertainment companies that are investing. So if you look at what Netflix is doing, or even if you look at what Apple is doing, uh, these companies that uh, were kind of have their genesis outside of the gaming industry that are now looking to make 
uh, acquisitions into that space in order to build a, a gaming branch of a, of a broader media play. So lots and lots of examples. And I think all of that just underlining how important gaming is to the broader media and entertainment industries. Recently, the proposed Microsoft acquisition of Activision has been referred to the FTC and the Competition and Markets Authority. Um, Is your prediction then based on rather than these huge blockbuster deals, is it more mopping up of smaller independents rather than the the massive publishers? Yes, I think that the there is our prediction is all about volume and you you find volume in startups and in smaller publishers and the the idea would be to acquire ip and to acquire talent um, but you do sometimes also see some of those bigger deals are actually based on content and franchises so if you look at the value of a franchise a good example would be next year one of the biggest movies of the year will probably be the super mario brothers movie right so companies are working out what franchises and ip each other has and working out how that can complement and add to what they have and how they can expand that and grow it so it's a mixture but that volume will be generated by smaller companies yeah and as i say frontier one of cambridge's examples they've uh, produced the jurassic park series of games as well so they've shown some of that kind of ip tie-up leadership as well which is great to see it's positive for everything you're saying there, you know, some real good opportunities for investment and acquisition within gaming. But if I look at the other prediction on M&A, you're predicting a very active year across TMT companies in divestiture where a company is going to dispose of all or some of its assets by, you know, selling it, exchanging it, or even, even closing it down. Can you therefore give us a couple of examples of some of the areas where you expect companies to recalibrate as they protect themselves for the future and maybe further uncertainty? Yeah, certainly. So across TMT, you see lots of companies now thinking strategically about the assets they have and which of those assets are really important to hold on to and which of them you could potentially let go. And most management teams across TMT are asking themselves the question, does it help my share price to retain this asset or would it be better for the share price of me and this potential asset's share price if we were separate entities? Um, So in 2022, there was a lot of uncertainty and it wasn't a good business environment to invest. By mid-2023, we think the environment will be much calmer. So in telco, it could be telcos spinning off towers and spinning off data centers and infrastructure. In tech, it could be semiconductor companies. So it could be semiconductor companies that you know take specific fabs or non-core facilities and spin those off. So it could be, uh, going back to telco, it could be a telco that has kind of broad media arms that are spinning those off and working out how that would impact the valuation. So that's one angle. You also have Lots of activist investors that want to see this happen because it increases the value of their assets. Uh, You have a lot of private equity and venture capital uh, money at the moment, which is sat on the sidelines, which hasn't been invested this year. And there aren't really many IPOs for VCs to get their teeth into. So what you may see next year is lots of companies at slightly depressed valuations that are ripe for acquisition and, and make attractive targets. So it's going to be a whole mixture of things, but lots of companies ask themselves how they can get more agile to transition across the current economic climate, which is not the most rosy outlook for many of them. 
it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? There's positives and negatives out of it. You know, I think certainly in Cambridge, we're starting to see quite a bit of PE activity now as well. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's going to be an interesting prediction to watch. So having ch now changed your order, let's end with the technology part of the predictions if we can. Last year, we had a, a company on the um, podcast called InfoSense who launched their sensor at the edge. So we're definitely starting to see a lot more activity at the edge than it's been talked about an awful lot. You know, everyone's been talking about tiny ML and nano ML, but it's actually now seeming to become into reality. So I'm interested in two things from you. First of all, what you think the main battle at the edge will be and any potential quick winners, or is it going to be the smaller companies that will win? And also my second question then is, do you think it will then change the shape of data centers and hyperscalers who have really maximized the fact that people have been doing a lot of transactions in the cloud? Okay, great questions. And if I miss one of those, call me up, please, and, and make me answer it. Um, so, yeah, our prediction on edge computing, like I said, we are bullish. We think that edge computing will grow over 20% this year. I don't think that the opportunity is limited to one set of companies, actually, and we don't believe that. We think there is opportunity across the range of different companies that would have to be involved. So I actually think that there's opportunities for hyperscalers in this. There's opportunities for telcos in this, infrastructure companies, Dell, HPE, Nokia, um, and also cloud management platform companies. So your Red Hats and your VMwares. Across that entire ecosystem, there's not one company, I think, that has a monopoly on data processing and analytics. So what you really need is you need IT channel, you need value-added resellers to pick their favorite three or four of those companies, stitch them together into a solution and start selling those solutions into enterprises. And we've been talking about edge computing for many years, actually, uh, in reality. And the reason it's taken so long to get to this nice growth stage is because of the complexity of bringing all these different companies and the value props together. But it's a good time. So you could see that there are examples like it's something as simple as the heating and ventilation in, a, in an office building. Lots of those systems right now are built on proprietary, old school building control systems, which are not connected to the internet. So what we're starting to see is examples of things like that connected to the internet. All of a sudden, you get much better data on how you're using energy across your facilities, which in this current climate is important to have. But also, being able to run computations on the edge um, rather than firing all that data back to a central cloud to make decisions is really important when things go wrong. So if you have a fire in the building, what's the first thing you do? You shut off all the ventilation. You don't want any fresh oxygen to blow through and push that fire into different rooms or different parts of the building. So uh, there are decisions that have to happen so fast that the best place for that compute to be is at an edge node, not necessarily at the cloud. And then there are less critical examples where it just makes sense to have that data close to the edge because you want to reduce all the network transition costs of sending absolutely every data point uh, to a hyperscaler and then back again. So uh, answer to the first question is we actually don't think that there's edge computing displaces what hyperscalers do. It's, it's a blend of everything you need. Um, and the second question as well, there's, there's loads of examples like that. And we have 
hundreds of billions of devices across the world that are accessing the internet now and generating these data points. And we need to find efficient ways of managing that. And that's what edge computing does. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And the, the the last question, I think, is around the net zero challenge to organizations. And it says in the report to look at things like operational efficiencies, sustainable products, other tech innovations. But there's going to be a lot of people listening to the podcast that work in tech organizations. Can you give them some quick suggestions as to what you think they should be doing? Sure. Yeah. So our, our prediction on tech and climate is that we think tech companies will be faster to take action on climate than non-tech companies. And that's not because tech companies are more virtuous or better than other industries. But in many cases, it's because tech and telecom companies actually use a lot more energy. So if you take like BT, for example, BT uses 1% of the entire electricity in the UK. Every company and every person, BT uses 1%, mostly on its fixed and mobile infrastructure. So it's important for tech to take these kinds of actions, not only to reduce your own costs, but also I think the in terms of calls to action, uh, the best things you can do is, number one, put pressure on your partners. So it's not just enough to reduce what we call scope one and scope two emissions, which is effectively what your company creates. But it's also really important to make sure companies you buy from and sell to are doing their part as well. And then the other thing that really works that we've discovered is tying senior leadership and the outcomes for senior leadership to sustainable outcomes. So you can recruit people in senior positions and senior positions that actually have targets that are aligned with your sustainability goals. So you can do things like align executive compensation to how far along your net zero journey you are. These things really make a difference and it helps to instill that culture up and down a company. So that's just two two examples of things you can do to, to make those kind of changes. It coming from the top down and them being accountable for it, I think is is super important. Um, so that that kind of is all of the predictions and a little bit of a discussion around them. What do you think is the overriding message coming out of your 2023 predictions? When we present at the moment, one of the huge challenges for us is in the current economic climate and energy climate, we feel like we're giving a lot of bad news. And the reality is that we are going into a period of constraint. Um, 2023 will not be easy for lots of people and lots of companies, and that we will have hard decisions to make. But at the same time, we think that constraint can be a kind of progenitor for invention. So I can give you examples. I speak with tech CEOs now that are training themselves to read energy futures markets. So these are skills that CEOs now have that they didn't have 12 months ago. So we have a much more capable C-suite. We see companies that are doing things like mothballing unused spaces or turning off the heating in corridors. Again, these outcomes that are positive, but they are silver linings of a dark cloud. And even things like sunsetting legacy infrastructure. So actually, I just mentioned BT a second ago. So for BT, BT has a mobile network in the UK. It has different generations on that network. So it has 3G, 4G, 5G. The 3G part of that network transmits 2% of its data, but uses 35% of its energy. So all of a sudden, the need to sunset 3G is, is much more pressing. So we'll see positive accelerations in areas like that 
off the back of what we're currently seeing. So my point would be our predictions are full of really inventive, exciting tech. And I think the current constraint we have may accelerate some of these and we may actually be undercalling some of the these markets in terms of the size they can reach. That's really interesting, especially that BT little insight there. It kind of touched on my final thought, which was, I mean, clearly this is a year round operation for you guys. You don't just dream up your predictions in December and share them in January. So you mentioned the kind of bad news. There's clearly 2022 was very much a kind of negative sentiment around tech, you know, from a stock market perspective. And obviously, unfortunately, thousands of people have lost their jobs, at certainly big tech and smaller startups. So I guess two part question, you know, number one, was that predicted? Number two, as you're trying to produce these, these kind of predictions for 23, how has that dynamic changed your predictions as you develop them through the year? Uh, yes, good question. So we can't predict scenarios like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's simply impossible. Um, but likewise, nor can any tech company or, or media company. So if you went back and looked at everyone's forecasts from 2021, what companies expected their revenue would be by the end of 2022 was not factoring in the fact that we'd have over 11% inflation or interest rates that have risen to 3% already and, and could possibly go higher. So everybody is constantly revising their expectations and forecasts. Um, what we try and do in TMT predictions is we, we don't have the luxury of adapting what we produce every quarter like a big tech company would. Um, so we're calling industries to watch. And it might be that depending on what happens with the economy, some of our predictions may be wider the mark in terms of magnitude. But we're trying to call industries that are on a certain growth trajectory and are hot topics to watch. And the reason we bring that to the public and our clients is because we want eyeballs to be on these industries as they emerge and grow. So it's not an easy task, even if let's say some of our predictions are wrong by five percent in terms of magnitude we still think the trajectory will be the same which is growth in these emerging categories i think it's it's all really super interesting ben and what what a great way to get people's gray matter reignited after after all the festivities it would also be super interesting to get you back on and and see how much the predictions have come true and if there is that order of magnitude of difference that, that you expect. So so maybe we should get you back on at the end of 2023 to talk about what, what happened and what are the predictions for next year. We'll put the link as well that you talked about earlier on. We'll put that into the show notes and then we can direct people to the report. But for now, thank you, Ben, very much for your time. Fabulous. Thank you both. Well, what a great way to start the year. I absolutely loved that conversation. It just framed the whole year out ahead of us. Um, we can track that as we go. And as you suggested, Faye, let's get Ben back on next January the 1st. That seems like a long way away just to talk about next year. Don't race a whole year ahead. <laughs> Crikey. Um, so talking about that, we have a really good set of content coming up for you, some really good episodes. Um, but we're always on the lookout for other interesting companies and people to come and join us on the podcast. So 
If you have any suggestions, please drop us an email at info at cambridgetechpodcast.com or message us on any of the social media channels. Next week, we're with Cambridge Clean Tech in advance of their Venture Day, talking to two of the pitching companies that are from here in Cambridge. And a quick final plug, if I may... The 21 to watch deadline is fast approaching. So if you are a startup looking to propel yourself onto a bigger stage, please submit via the pages at cofinitive.com and click 21 to watch. See you next week. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. 